sure you uh, take a moment to greet him before you leave. Are you in Acts chapter 24? Uh, we've been working through the book of Acts for probably a couple of years now. Uh, one of the longer books of the New Testament. In chapter 21, Paul finally made it back to Jerusalem. He had a great burden in his heart about that. Uh, even though the Holy Spirit warned him over and over again, when you get there, understand this, bonds and afflictions are waiting for you there. But he knew it's what God wanted him to do, and, and he wasn't d- discouraged by that. And he wasn't there very long, and uh, everything just went south, if you will. Uh, He was in the temple with four other men praying, minding their own business. They were under a vow together. Uh, And some Jews from Asia, unconverted men, saw him, and uh, they just went nuts uh, in chapter 21. And and they they called everybody together. This is the man. Uh, he, He preaches against us as Jewish people. He preaches against our temple. He preaches against the scriptures. None of it was true. None whatsoever, but the, the multitude in there, uh, in, in the temple square, possibly uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people just joined in and they just, they just started pounding away uh, at the Apostle Paul. And uh, I mean, it was a life and death situation. I mean, just that fast. And if you remember, the Romans had a tower uh, at the corner of the temple complex called the, the Castle of Antonia or the, the Tower of Antonia. And from there, they could look out over the temple square and all of the city of Jerusalem. And if there was a problem, they could get troops out there to, to stop anything going on. And the, the Roman uh, captain saw it, sent some troops down like 200 soldiers uh, down there to, to get Paul out of the place. And, uh, you know, of course, he has no idea what's going on. Uh, he thought Paul was this Egyptian guy who led a group of assassins. Uh, I don't know why he thought that about him. Paul, I, I think, was probably a little guy. Uh, I, I think he's probably a little bald guy. Uh, we know he had some poor eyesight type thing, you know, and he probably didn't look like the assassin type, but that was his first impression. Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Cilicia. He said, is it okay? Can I talk to the people? And remember the, the captain said, sure, go ahead. And so Paul's standing up on the, uh, the stairwell going into this castle and he beckoned with the hand something like this. And for some reason, that crowd that was screaming and raging against him went into silence. And he spoke to the captain in Greek, and now he speaks to the multitude in Hebrew. And in chapter 22, he shares his testimony with them, uh, how he was raised a Pharisee, how at one time he persecuted the people uh, that, uh, you know, called them the people of this way. Um, and, and so forth. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life changed. They're all listening to his testimony. They're doing well until he got to that place of saying, and then the Lord said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles and you're going to preach to them. And once again, just the word Gentile was all it took. And they erupted once again and said, away with this guy, he should die, uh, and so forth. And uh, so the captain rushed him back into the the temple, uh, I'm sorry, into the castle and so forth. So in chapter 23, uh, the captain said, uh, let's have a trial, let's do this thing right. And so he he told the Jewish leaders to come on in and they were going to find out, get to the bottom of this whole thing. Uh, Before that, what did the captain attempt to do to Paul? Anybody remember? Scourge him, which was against the law because Paul was a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish man. And it was against the law in Roman culture to scourge a Roman. 
So that captain almost made a very big mistake. From that point on, he was very careful in his dealings with Paul, uh, which was good for Paul. He had a friend in his corner, if you will. So the next day, uh, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, uh, probably 70 uh, of these men came in. And, uh, you know, the captain wants to know what's going on. So Paul stood up to speak and, uh, you know, it wasn't going well. The chief priest had him smacked in the face and, and so forth. And, and then Paul wise, wisely looked around and said, half of these people are Sadducees, half are Pharisees. They believe different things. So he just said, by the way, guys, I'm a Pharisee and my dad was a Pharisee and of the hope of the resurrection, that's what I'm called into question. And they stopped, they stopped fussing with him and they started fighting amongst themselves. And this, this next fight broke out. And I keep thinking about this Roman captain that's watching all of this take place. These are the people that look down on the Romans. They consider the Romans pagans and they were. Um, and they, they considered themselves better than the Romans uh, and so forth. And here are the people claiming we've got the scriptures. We worship the one true God and, and we're the only ones that are right. And he's watching down there behaving like a bunch of animals. What a, what a lousy, poor testimony it was. So he, he had Paul brought back into the castle uh, and so forth until things could calm down. And then uh, there, were, there were a group of men, about 40 of them took a vow on themselves. The Bible calls it a curse. What, what was the promise, the curse they took on themselves? Anybody remember? Yeah, they said, none of us are going to eat or drink until we have killed Paul. And, and, and it was called a curse because it was, if we don't do this, God will curse us and our families type thing. So they said, we've taken this vow on ourselves. They went to the chief priests and the scribes who were supposed to be godly leaders. And there was no question about it yet. Yeah, go for it. Uh, by the way, how long did Paul live after this? Anybody remember? Yeah, about a decade. So either they were very hungry or they died of starvation or they didn't fulfill their curse. Uh, but they took, they took that and they were planning just to lay in wait. And when they brought Paul out the next time, these guys would be, would be there and they just kill him. Uh, Paul's nephew heard about it, went to the chief captain and uh, let, him, let him know all about it. Well, the captain couldn't let anything bad happen to Paul. Why? Because Paul was a Roman. Why else? What would happen if Paul was killed under this captain's watch care? Anybody know? He could lose his life at the worst. He could be demoted. Uh, he could be put in prison because... As, a, as a, a Roman soldier, he was responsible for those even in his captivity, especially with Paul being a Roman. Uh, so that night, they got uh, hundreds of soldiers together, uh, a small army, and about nine o'clock at night, they left Jerusalem and they headed north some 74 miles to a place called Caesarea. They stopped in the middle of the night um, and, and uh, you know, changed animals and so forth. And Paul got there and that's where he came under the care of a man named Felix, who was the governor of that region. Felix, as we learned last week from history, uh, was a Roman governor appointed to that position. Um, he was a ruthless man. He had absolutely no love for the Jewish people. Um, and uh, he, he was very harsh in the judgment he meted out. We talked about the Sicarii, those assassins 
that that Roman uh, chief captain thought Paul was the leader of, um, they were a, a thorn in Felix's side. And anytime he, he uncovered one of them, uh, it was a brutal, swift judgment. Uh, Felix was a very harsh guy, ruled with an iron hand. He is now in charge of Paul's life. Now, remember, for the rest of his life, the next decade, he will get liberty now and then to, to go out and be with his friends or for his friends to come to him. Paul will never be a free man again. He is under the, the, uh, the, the, captor, uh, the captivity of the Roman Empire now, and that will never, ever change. But as we also commented last week, uh, he, never lost, he never regained his freedom, but he never lost his faith. And he never lost his faithfulness. We're going to pick it up there. Uh, we're in chapter 24, uh, verse number five. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders. I love, I love the language of our King James Bible. Very, very expressive there. Uh, Jerusalem was built on a hillside. And in the mind of the Jews, anytime you left Jerusalem, you went down. Didn't matter if you're going north, south, east, or west. You went down. Um, Caesarea is to the northwest just a bit, uh, some 70 miles from Jerusalem. So it says they descended. Um, John Phillips, in his commentary on that word descended, he said it is, it is a word that gives you the impression of a pack of vultures descending on a carcass. Um, how many have ever seen documentaries, documentaries about vultures? Buddy, they're some of the creepiest, ugliest birds God ever decided to make. Um, and uh, that's, that's what that word descended sort of gives you the idea of. And they have somebody with them. Look at verse one. And with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. This guy shows up. Uh, it's the only time he comes on the pages of scripture. There's not much known about him in history. Um, they realized they can't speak for themselves because they can't get along. Um, you know, the Pharisees think one of them should talk. The Sadducees think one of them should talk. And it's just going to turn into a brawl. And they know we can't do that now. That, that didn't work very well. So they brought this guy in. He's an orator, maybe a debater. Uh, he may have been what we might refer to as a, a lawyer type thing. Uh, in, in that legal sense, we're not sure. He just called an orator. And um, he's going he's to inform the governor against Paul. Notice verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee, talking to Felix, we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Boy, is he pouring it on. Uh, he starts out with flattery. First of all, Felix was none of the things that Tertullus called him. He was not noble. Uh, he was not good to the Jewish people. Um, he was not a good governor as far as, as they are uh, concerned. But, you know, he just pours that on. He's, he's starting out with flattery. Is flattery a good thing or a bad thing? Depends. It's a good answer. Very, very safe answer. Generally, flattery has a connotation that it's not a good thing. Usually when we think of flattery, it's somebody who's got an ulterior motive. 
So they are trying to build somebody up, butter them up is a word that we use. Um, and, and generally, flattery is not con, uh, considered a sincere thing. A compliment is a sincere thing. It's, boy, I appreciate what you did, or thank you for that, or boy, that was really something. Um, and there's, there's no ulterior motive in that. Uh, I, I spoke with Brother Adam today, and I talked to him about uh, singing Oh Holy Night Sunday night when he closed out our Christmas Eve service. Um, and uh, boy, to me, it was just a moving thing. And I, I looked out and even in the dark, I could see folks just in rapt attention. I thought it was a wonderful way to end the service. And I'm telling him that, that, that was a compliment. Uh, you know, I wasn't trying to get him to give up his firstborn or something like that to me. Um, but Tertullus is pouring it on. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 20, verse 19. Keep your place here. We'll be back. Proverbs chapter 20, because we're going to see Paul speak in a moment. We're going to see a difference between the two. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse uh, number 19. He that goeth about as a tale bearer. That means you know a story and you bear it around to other people. He that goeth about as a tale bearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. God puts a warning out there. When you meet somebody and that's how they operate, don't meddle with them. Stay away from them. That's a, a dangerous person. Look at chapter 29 of Proverbs. Proverbs 29. Verse number five, a man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. He's up to something. And he, he, you ought not trust that person, okay? And that's what Tertullus is, is doing back here. Um, and, you know, so he's, he's got it going. Look at verse four, but we're back in Acts 24. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee. Um, yep, you're tedious. There's no doubt about it. I pray thee that thou would hear us of thy clemency a few words. So he's trying to speak in, you know, in, a, uh, in brevity. He's poured it on thick. And now he's going to start, he's going to go from flattery to Felix to the false accusations against Paul. Verse five, for we have found this man a pestilent fellow. Isn't that a, isn't that a word? A pestilent fellow. Um, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You notice the words that he's choosing to use. Um, words have meaning and they have oftentimes either a positive or negative connotation. Pestilent, good or bad, like really bad. Rob laughed when, he, when I read the word pestilent there. How about ringleader? Yeah, we think, we think bad about that sedition. Sure. So, you know, we found him. He's, he's pestilent. He's a mover of sedition. Gives you the idea that he's coming in and, and uh, he's just deliberately trying to stir up trouble. Um, uh, ringleader gives you the idea, um, you know, he's the head of a group of terrorists. You know, it's, it's like here instead of a sect of the Nazarenes, it could be today, you know, he's, he's from Hamas, you know, something like that. Uh, and that's, that's the way he's phrasing uh, everything about this, this little guy standing up there who's black and blue, you know, five days ago, he, he, was, he was beaten within an inch of his life. And so undoubtedly, he's still there. We don't know if he's gotten a change of clothes before this, but here's this little solitary guy standing out there. 
Uh, verse six, who, who also hath gone about to profane the temple. What did they accuse him of when he was in the temple in Acts 21? Anybody remember? Linda? Yeah, they had seen him with some Greeks earlier. And so they accused him of bring, bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was against temple law. Remember, they had signs around the temple uh, place that there was what's called the court of the Gentiles where you and I could go. OK, uh, but there were signs written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek saying that any Gentile that crossed that point was taking their life into their hands. They were responsible for the loss of their life. They accused Paul of taking a man named Trophimus there. Did he? No, um, he, he didn't do it. But, the, you know, when when you're out for somebody, facts don't much matter. So they, they accuse him of profaning the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Is that true? Were they going to judge him according to their law? Yes or no? Anybody say yes? Wise, wise choice. Um, according to their law, what should they have done when the, the Jews from Ephesus brought the accusations? He's brought Greeks into the temple. Uh, you know, he, he, he preaches against Jews and against the scriptures. According to Jewish law, what should they have done? Nope. They needed two or more witnesses. They, they needed to, to bring it, if you will, to a trial. Um, they needed to bring the accusers there. There had to be at least two or three of them or it wouldn't stand. Um, they had to have proof. The whole nine, that's the way Jewish law was laid out. Is that how they were handling things? How were they handling things? Yeah, they were beating the living daylights out of him with no trial, no opportunity for him to even defend himself. But Tertullus somehow left that part out uh, and make it look, we were going to judge him according to our law. Now look at this. But the chief, chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. With great violence. Um, turn back a few pages to chapter 21. Let's, let's think of this idea of violence. Okay. Uh, verse number... Um, all 30 and all the city was moved and they people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to what? Kill him. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Supposedly now remember Tertullus said the chief captain came with great violence who immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw the chief captain and the elders, they left beating of Paul. Who was doing the violence? Yeah, they were. Okay. Um, and uh, look down a, a little bit further. Um, and let's see, where do I want you to be? Um, verse number... Uh, um, Verse 33, the chief captain came near, took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, demanded who he was and what he had done. Some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. When he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the uh, castle. And when he came upon the stairs, it was so that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of whom? The people. 
So we're back in uh, chapter 24. Tertullus is up there speaking. Question, do we know where is Lysias, the Roman chief captain, is he here? Yes or no? He's not, remember, he only went part way with him and then he went back to Jerusalem. Uh, we learned that in the last chapter. So he's not there. If he was, I don't think Tertullus would have been so casual about that uh, because he had somebody to say, oh, wait, that's not what happened at all. Uh, so he's taken a, a lot of liberty and it's all false. The man's lying out of both sides of his mouth. Verse eight, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. You're gonna examine him. You're gonna find out everything we're saying is true. And the Jews also assented saying that these things were so. So the chief priests and their entourage came. Here's their guy, and they're all sitting in the back. Their heads are not, yeah, yeah, he did it. Yep, he did it. And kind of like, amen, brother, yeah, preach it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's kind of one of those things. Yeah, he did all this stuff, and everybody agrees with me. Have you ever had somebody do that? Gossips are really good at that. Yeah, and everybody agrees with me. Everybody means them and the two friends they have left in the world. Uh, agrees with them. Uh, it's always the idea of trying to make it look like uh, everybody's on their side and so forth. And so they're assenting to this. So Tertullus has had his moment. It's been flattery. It's been falsehood. Not one thing that came out of his mouth, including the flattery, was true. Not one word of it is true. Sometimes in a situation of false accusation, there's a little bit of truth, but there's also a little bit of error. I like the oath, if you've ever been in a, in a court of law and you've ever had to give evidence or give testimony, I have once or twice, uh, one of the things they ask of you is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You see, people that are out to make accusations are, are excellent um, at leaving certain things out, generally the part where they did wrong. Okay, they, 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 they leave that out um, or they add stuff. So it's not the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Um, and if it's not the whole truth, it's a, it's a lie. If you've added to it, uh, you've taken truth and added a falsehood to it, what's the whole thing? It's all a lie. It's all wrong. Uh, and we need to understand that as believers um, we're looking at Tertullus and thinking what a scoundrel, but we're no different. We're no different when we're in the, the, the habit of backbiting or false accusing or tailbearing uh, and so forth. And we're not telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It doesn't matter how many people we get to agree with us. It doesn't matter who's on our side and how big their name is. Tertullus is standing in there and chief priest is on his side. Chief priest was you know, like the grand poobah of the day. Uh, and he was an ungodly man, Ananias. Uh, it doesn't matter who you got to side with you. If it's not the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, it is a, we're, we're reluctant to say it. If it is not the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, it is a lie. And that's what Tertullus has done. Verse 10, then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak. So Tertullus is done. Uh, and he goes and sits down and I, I see all the boys over there. Good job, yeah, good job. Yeah, you, man, you really put it to him. 
Uh, so the governor lets Paul come out and he's going to speak for himself. For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. Paul doesn't butter him up. He just says, you've been a judge here for many years. It's believed probably at this time Felix had been over uh, Palestine for uh, somewhere between five and seven years. He understands the lay of the land. He understands the political landscape. He understands these people. Uh, so Paul, Paul knows that Felix is fully aware of how things operate there in Israel. He said, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Verse 11 said, I've only, I've only been here for 12 days, counting the five that he was in, in, in uh, uh, prison there in Felix Judgment Hall. I've only been here for 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. From chapter 21, we know he met when he first got there, he met with James and, and the other leaders of the church at Jerusalem did not go into any synagogues and James encouraged him to take a vow with four other men and go to the temple. What were Paul and those four men doing in the temple? Can you remember? Was he preaching? They were praying, okay? They weren't rousing up anybody. They, they weren't causing alarm. They were keeping to themselves. They were praying. They were under this vow. So Paul is saying, we, we weren't arguing with anybody. We were minding our own business. Verse 13, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Bring forth one person that heard me say anything that they're accusing me of. They have no proof. There's nothing out there. Um, again, false accusers generally don't worry about whether they have proof or not. Um, if you don't believe me on that, watch CNN or MSNBC. They don't really much care if there's proof. If, if they can make it sound bad, that's exactly what they're going to do. And Fox does it too. I think probably they all do it to some extent. Um, and Paul said, they don't have any proof on this, but this I confess unto thee. This, this probably sounds interesting to Felix. I'm, I am going to confess something to you. And I'm, I'm seeing Tertullus and the other guys, and they're all leaning forward just a little bit, uh, ready to hear what he's going to say, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. By the way, his statement of faith there, they can't argue with. They can't argue with. The only thing that they would find fault with is after the way which they call heresy, so worship by the God of my father. See, Paul understood the scriptures all pointed to Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, the promised Savior. Um, everywhere he went, we learned earlier in the book of Acts, every synagogue he went into, um, he, was, he was opening the scriptures, opening and alleging uh, that Christ uh, had to come, that he must needs have suffered all the things that Jesus did and then be raised from the dead. Um, that was all in their scriptures. Paul saying they call this way heresy, but it's according to the word of God. It's their law. That's how I worship. 
Verse 16, I have this highlighted in my Bible. Here is an outstanding motto for every one of us to grab a hold of. Here's how we ought to live. And, I, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Just think about it. This is a rich statement. Paul said, and herein do I exercise myself. That word exercise means I train myself. I devote a great deal of time. Um, in, a, in a couple of weeks, I'll do a powerlifting competition. Uh, for months, I have been training for that. Uh, I, I'll be doing back squats, bench press, and deadlifting. Each one of them requires certain movements. There are certain rules that have to be followed during a competition that if you violate the rule, no matter if you got the weight up or not, it doesn't count, it's invalidated, uh, and so forth. And so Sam has been drilling things into my head. We've been doing things over and over and over and over again, not just to increase strength, to be able to, to do a little bit more weight, to make sure that the form is correct, that I'm not violating any of, of the rules of all of that. I'm exercising myself. I'm training myself for the, that particular day. That's what the word exercise means that Paul is using. It carries all of that. Some of you are runners and, and you don't just get out and say, hey, I'm going to run a marathon today. You train and you train and you train and you train. Am I, am I correct? Um, and so forth. That's the word that Paul is using. Okay. Herein do I exercise myself. To, to have always a conscience. That conscience is that voice that God placed inside of us that tells us that was right or that was wrong. That's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter three. God didn't tell them they did wrong. Their conscience did. The minute they ate that fruit, the Bible says their eyes were open. Uh, they knew that they were naked. Suddenly shame filled them for the first time. Guilt filled them for the first time. When they heard the vo voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, fear became a part of their life. God hadn't talked to them about it yet. That was their conscience speaking out against their wrongdoing. And God's placed that there. Um, and Paul said, I exercise myself to have a conscience that's always clear both to God and towards other men. Uh, Paul talked about his conscience a lot. We're gonna look at a few scriptures here for a moment. Uh, so turn with me if I could get you to do that. Let's start at 2 Corinthians chapter one. 2 Corinthians chapter one. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he makes this statement in verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Again, our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. Our conscience either uh, accuses us and says that was wrong. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. You're wrong. It, it, it either fills us with regret, it fills us with guilt, or it can cause us to rejoice 
whether or not it turned out the way we expected it, but we know we did the right thing in the sight of God, our conscience said that was right. That was the right thing to do. There were times that I've tried to help someone and it, it, it fell on, if you will, deaf ears. It was unappreciated or whatever. Uh, I'm disappointed maybe in the reaction of the person I tried to help, but on the inside, I know I still did the right thing. And Paul said, my conscience, remember all the way back in Acts, he said, I exercise myself. I train. I train like an athlete to make sure that I always have a conscience void of offense towards God or towards man. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Trying to kind of go in order so you're not flipping back and forth too much here. Uh, look, if you would, please, to verse number 5. Actually, we're going to start at verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So Paul left Timothy to pastor the church, uh, encourage people, don't get caught up in things that don't matter. Um, they didn't have the internet, but I'm sure Paul would have warned all of us about getting our doctrine off the internet. But verse five, now the end of the commandment, I mean, the end result, the goal of what Paul's telling Timothy to do, the, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. That means when you, when you do something kind, expressing love for someone else, it's for the right reasons. It, it's, it's not with an ulterior motive in mind. Charity out of a pure heart and of a what? And of a what? Good conscience. And of faith unfeigned. Uh, uh, feigned means pretended. So faith unfeigned means uh, I'm real about my love for the Lord. I'm real about what I believe. I'm not just putting on a show to impress my teacher, my youth pastor, my parents or anybody else. Um, I really do believe the Bible and I do love God. That's faith unfeigned, but tucked in the middle of those two is of a good conscience. So the idea is you and I follow the teaching of the word of God. It is gonna produce some things in us. One, it's gonna produce real Bible love. John uh, in 1 John, boy, he just lays it out there um, that uh, if, if you claim that you love God but don't obey him, you're a liar. If you claim that you love God but you're not good to, uh, to God's people, you're a liar. If you came to love God uh, but, but you, you hate your brother, he says you're a liar. I mean, he, he doesn't mess around at all. The apostle of love really puts it out there for us. Um, and Bible teaching will produce biblical love. It'll produce a solid faith. And if we apply it, it'll also let us live with a good conscience. So that at the end of the day, we can look in the mirror and we're not ashamed of ourselves. No matter what others might think or know, we know the truth. Look, if you would, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's writing to the same young man. He says in verse three, I thank God whom I serve from my fathers with what? With pure conscience that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Serving God from his forefathers. So from the time he was a child, he had a pure conscience. He, he was always trying to do that which pleased God. He has a conscience that's not beating him up. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13. 
I personally believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, I won't argue with anybody over it. There's no author given here, but notice what he says in verse 18, pray for us. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Remember, this is the man standing before Felix. I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense towards God or towards man. Uh, that theme is repeated. First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. And the apostle Peter writes to us, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a what? Good conscience. That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The unbelievers are always going to think that we're the bad guys. And we live in an age where good is called evil and evil is called good. Um, I, I don't mean to be unkind, but, uh, you know, we had a campaign several years ago said we're going to return decency to the White House. Have you seen what's gone on with an Easter egg hunt with topless women for children and men dressed like women? Uh, by the way, just because a man puts on a woman's dress doesn't make him a woman. It makes him creepy. It makes him sinful, Right? The man shall not wear that which pertaineth to a woman. Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? How many remember reading that? Um, and, and so forth. But if it, for saying what I just did, I'm a hate monger, I'm this, that, or the other thing. Uh, that's the day and age in which we live. Um, I, I don't hate anybody. Um, I, I, I absolutely don't. Um, I sat in my office with a young man uh, that worked with my daughter at Starbucks who was a homosexual. Um, you'd have never guessed it by seeing him. Uh, he, he was in the army reserves and, uh, Anna had been a good testimony in front of him and he came in to talk to me and we, I shared the gospel with him and so on and so forth. I was nothing but kind of, and he knew that I knew his lifestyle and all of that. Uh, never at one time did he feel like that I hated him, that I was being unkind, but I shared Bible truth with him and, and he cried. He told me two things that astounded me. Number one, he said, no matter what they tell you, they use the word gay for the lifestyle, but there's nothing gay about it. He said, it's a lonely lifestyle. He said, number two, I believe what you're saying is true, but I know that if I get saved, all of the friends in my life will turn on me and will hate me. It was almost like King Agrippa that we're gonna get to pretty soon. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I share that story with you. I'm going to pray for that young man. But number two, to realize just because we speak out against a particular sin does not mean that we hate the people. Uh, Peterson, they're going to they're treat you as a false accuser. In the first century, Christians got blamed for everything. They got blamed for earthquakes. They, they got blamed for uh, what we would call a hurricane or a cyclone. They, they, got, they got blamed if it didn't rain and the crops were drying up. They got blamed, you know, Nero blamed the Christians for burning down Rome. Most historians believe he did it to clear out some of the old ratty Roman apartment tenements so he could build some new uh, temples to himself. Uh, Christians got blamed for everything. Peter said, they're gonna speak against you as an evildoer. But he said, you need to live in such a way that uh, they can't accuse your behavior. 
They see you being honest. They see you being a hard worker. They see you being good to other people. They see you obeying the law uh, in, in as much as you can as a Christian. And you do those things and you have a good conscience. So no matter what they're saying, you know it's not true. How many, how many follow that? Paul said, I train myself to have a conscience like that. Um, why would we have to train ourselves to have a good conscience? Think about that. Why, why would we, Paul said, I exercise myself. Why do we have to do that? We have a sin nature. It doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Um, usually the, the illustration all the time, how many of you parents ever had to teach Johnny how to lie? Nobody. How to say no, to talk back. Anybody? No. How to fight with their siblings. Uh, Rob and Anna bought a, a gift for Sarah and her family in North Carolina, a family gift. Uh, I think they bought them an air hockey table. And Sarah called me uh, with the, the kids on, uh, early on Christmas morning, and they'd already opened their gifts and stuff. And she pointed to the, the, the air hockey table. It was still in the box. She said it took three to four minutes for, Dylan, or for, uh, for Finn and Jack to be fighting about it. It was still in the box and they were fighting. You don't have to teach kids to do that. That's our sinful nature. Um, and so we've got this warfare going on. Paul said, I got to be careful. I don't, I don't want my sinful nature taken over. I train myself so that I'm doing right, so that I have a good conscience at the end of the day. By the way, he made a statement. He said to have a good conscience, void of offense toward God and toward man. Um, please look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We were there. Now we're going to go back a little bit. We're talking about good, is our conscience always trustworthy? 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, and look, uh, let's, let, let's start at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, I believe that's the time in which we're living, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience, what? Seared with a hot iron. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Anybody here ever burn your finger or your hand on something? Was it a good thing? Did you say, I think I'll do that with the other hand now. Um, the idea of seared means that, that uh, the nerves are dead and you don't, you don't have any feeling left there, okay? Um, so Paul warns that people are going to depart from the faith having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They still have a conscience, but it doesn't, it doesn't work well anymore. Uh, look, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. Under the pure... All things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. There are some people that have such a dirty mind, it doesn't matter what you say, they'll make something dirty out of it. And they'll snicker and they'll elbow each other. Um, and all they're revealing is, you sir, you ma'am, you son, you have a dirty mind. You're impure. That's what he's saying there. Under the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But look at this. But even their mind and conscience is what? So you can, have an, you can have a seared conscience. You can have a defiled conscience. So do I just trust myself and my conscience? Yes or no? Okay. 
How do I know if I have a conscience void of offense towards God? How do I know? Any guesses? Oh, good answer. It's right here. This book here tells you what pleases God and what displeases him. I, 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 I don't dare trust my feelings and I don't even dare trust my own conscience. That's part of the training. Well, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't think what I did was that bad. That's not, that's not the, the basis and the foundation for whether it was right or wrong, whether I see it or not. Um, you know, um, we, we're, we're studying the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Did they do right? Yes or no? No, we're reading the last several chapters. And in, in, in two chapters, we met a guy named Micah who hired a Levite, had a house of idols, and thought that God's going to bless him because now he had a Levite to be his priest in his house of idols. He thought that was great. Now we're in a chapter where uh, we, we talked about it last Sunday where the, this woman got mutilated and, and, and abused by all these wicked people in the city of Gibeon and uh, her, her husband took her home, chopped her body in 12 pieces and sent it out to the 12 tribes of Israel, right or wrong. But they're doing that which is right in their own eyes. We don't dare trust ourselves. God gave us a book. It doesn't matter if I see anything wrong with it. If, if the Bible says I did right, I'm okay. I'm okay. And by the way, I can try to twist the Bible to make it say anything I want, but that's dishonest. The Bible either says it's right or it's wrong, period. And if I'm honest about it, that's where the exercise comes in. Paul said, I exercise myself. So he's standing in front of the guy that's going to determine his fate. Tertullus stood up and it was just flattery. By the way, Tertullus knew what the Jewish people thought about him. So there was no way that Tertullus was pulling the wool over his eyes and that he was saying, yeah, they really like me. They really think I'm awesome. He knew the truth about it. He had to deal with the assassins, the Sicarii, um, who were, were out for any Roman that they could find anywhere in the land. Um, and then, you know, it was lie after lie about Paul. So Paul just stands up and said, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense. Um, look at John chapter eight and we're done. John chapter eight. And we're, we're ending exactly where I intended to tonight because every one of us has a conscience. Hopefully it's a good one. Hopefully that's your heart and desire. Hopefully it's not seared. A seared conscience is awful hard to cure. It's awful hard to fix. A defiled conscience can be cleansed. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Um, our conscience is very important, okay? John chapter eight, are you there? Um, let's, uh, let's start in verse one. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in, adult, in adultery when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So he's just writing on the ground. Do you ever wonder what did he write? 
You ever wonder? I, I, have, a, I have a guess. What, do you, anybody here have a guess? Diana? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah. Yeah, he may have just written down the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. Anybody else have a guess what you think he might have been writing? Steve? Okay, not to look in the nakedness of a woman. Anything else? George? He might have done that because he, he would have known, you know, you know, Malcolm is a liar and, and Beelzebub's a thief. He might have done that. I think he wrote a question. Personal opinion. None of us can prove anything we're saying. I think he made it written down, where's the man? Doesn't it say they said she was taken in the very act? So where's the guy? Why'd they only bring her? Was one of them the guy? Uh, I, we have no idea. We just have to get, by the way, every, every suggestion you had, very viable. Any one of them could have been right. Um, so he did that. So they continued asking him. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him ca first cast a stone at her. Um, what excusing her sin at all. Um, but obviously they weren't doing everything according to the law. We have no idea what he wrote in the ground. So he said, okay, the, the, the one that's without sin amongst you, throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he just continued whatever it is that he's writing. And they which heard it being convicted by their own what? Conscience. Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What an amazing situation. Why do you suppose it was the older people that left first? Any thoughts? The oldest, you know, when, when it was all said and done, it was the, the youngest person in their group was the only one left there. And then he eventually toddled off. Why the eldest to the last? Any thoughts? Linda? Okay, both are pretty good. <laughs> they had more sin because they were older. They had more years to chalk things up. Uh, and again, they, they should be setting an example of, of, of right and wrong. Um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe just, you know, as we get a little older, sometimes we, we look at life differently. We're, we're hopefully not as rash and brash as we were when we were young. Um, but understand they were convicted by their conscience that at least says their conscience wasn't seared, doesn't it? And they, they walked away. So we see Paul, he's standing here at his defense. He is not finished. We'll, we'll move into that next Wednesday evening um, and so forth. Um, that verse, I have it highlighted in yellow. I have brackets around it. And herein do I exercise myself. Let's go into training church to have a good conscience towards God, and towards man. If we do that, we're okay. Let's stop there. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul.